Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. This is from uh, Genesis in three different chapters because this story is a very long story. It is a story that you know very well, but there are pieces of it you may not know. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and filled with violence. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. There you go. Now you know what the story is if you didn't before. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are alone, that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not eaten, and the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the air, male and female, and keep their kind alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all of that that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came on the earth. In the Six, in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and saw that the face of the ground was drying. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. And then God said to Noah, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. And every animal, every creeping thing, and every bird, and everything that moves on the earth went out of the ark by families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of the clean birds and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And then the Lord smelt the pleasing odor The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. For the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. 
nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So among the questions that I have heard that have been asked, um, if I went back to that original uh, Ask Me Anything series, when I looked at all the questions that you gave, some of you asked the more, you know, scholarly questions about the origin of the Bible and who wrote it, but the majority of you, the majority of you did not care about that and are prob- have probably been bored out of your minds for the last few weeks. That's okay, this half of the series is for you. Why does God seem so loving in the, in the New Testament, but angry and harsh and vengeful in the Old Testament? That was probably the root of the majority of your questions. And this question isn't new, right? We actually talked about this question just a little bit two weeks ago. Two weeks ago during the Wordle series, um, that week was the word power. And we talked about by what authority, and we talked about this guy named Marcion. That was probably when you were starting to zone out. But this guy named Marcion who was this, in the second century and who was troubled by this question himself, that he, that he, so much troubled that he believed and, and compiled the very first Bible or compilation of scripture under the theological assumption that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, could not possibly really be God, but some kind of lesser God. He decided this. Marcion eventually was called a heretic, but Marcion believed that the heavenly father of Jesus was a different God altogether from the Old Testament God, the true one who sent Jesus to proclaim forgiveness and salvation We also learned that week that that the church quickly rejected Marcion's conclusion. It was because of Marcion, Marcion's very theologically problematic compilation of the Bible, that other early church leaders began to actually put together the very first New Testament document. So it was rejected, but the question still remains. And I did not answer this question two weeks ago, but we will talk about it today. Why does God seem so loving in the New Testament, but angry and harsh and vengeful in the Old Testament. Which brings us to our scripture today. Did you hear it? Um, you know the, all the re- repetitive parts about the animals and who, who's brought onto the ark, but um, if you paid attention to the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage, um, even if you, you never picked up a Bible, you know this story. Not all the pieces of it, but you know the Noah story. But if you, I wonder if you paid attention to the why. In our reading this morning, we got the why. Why did God flood the earth? It says God was grieved by human violence. The Lord saw the wickedness of humankind. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and filled with violence. And so God said, I will blot out the earth. God was grieved by human violence, it says, but... Marcians and many of your questions remain because there are passages in the Old Testament where God commands violence and even genocide. And these now stand in stark contrast to this Noah story and to Jesus' call on us to love our enemies, right? And these violent passages not only trouble thoughtful Christians who ask these hard questions, but they give 
They give fodder to atheists who assert, sometimes rightly, that religion is the source of much of the violence in the world. Which brings us to our sixth word of our series. This is week seven in the series, but our sixth word today, our word is issue. Like Marcion and, and many others, we take issue with many of the moral dilemmas of the Bible. What do we do with them? How do we read within and around these? And so today I think it's first important that I begin by making clear what these issues are, and this is why I've asked the, the, the children to leave the room, it's a good place to go today. Um, shedding light on some of these biggest issues, the most morally problematic texts of the Old Testament. And then I'd like to make a, a possible path forward for us. So I, I think that there are categorically three main morally problematic issues in the Old Testament. One, one category is the crimes for which God says you deserve the death penalty. That's one category. Then God's anger and wrath in general towards punishing people which is how people get the idea that God of the Old Testament is an angry, vengeful God. And then God's command to the Israelites to commit genocide. So I, we're going to put them out there today. Just put it out. Yay. You excited? <laughs> so uplifting. <laughs> so the first one. Did you know that there are numerous crimes for which God, through, through the law of Moses, requires the death penalty? It... it it may not surprise you that, that God requires the death penalty for like premeditated murder, that's one of them, or like human sacrifice, and actually rape and kidnapping also are punishable by death in the Old Testament, which actually, the passage about rape came up recently in lots of conversations related to um, the Supreme Court decision. Um, that, that passage has come up uh, a lot. Um, but, but it is in there that the death penalty was prescribed for, for, um, for, for those who commit rape. Um, but consider with me the other crimes which God requires the death penalty for in the law of Moses. Sacrificing to another god persistently rebellious children, children who hit or curse their parents, working on the Sabbath, which, you know, that's what I'm doing right now, um, <laughs> sexual intimacy with someone else's spouse, premarital sexual intercourse, and then the one that everybody loves to talk about, male homosexual intimacy. That's all, those are the ones that are in there. Have you heard about the other seven above the last one? Nobody seems to talk about those. Some of you are like, I did not know I could put my child to death. <laughs> so these, this is, and this isn't even the comprehensive list of scriptures and commands. This isn't even it. For instance, a, a priest um, was, was told to burn his daughter alive if she became a prostitute. That's a very specific one, specific case. In, in Deuteronomy 13, there are, it, it notes that if your, your own brother or your, your son or your daughter or your wife or your closest friend even entices you, 
let us go and worship another god. You must kill them. From time to time in the media, we hear stories of racial... Um, sorry. From time to time in the media, we hear, hear stories of radical communities um, mas often masquerading as Muslim, putting people to death for such crimes, and, and we recoil when we see this on the news, and yet the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus Christ, says these things right here. And so we rightly ask, how do we reconcile God's mercy and grace with God assigning death penalty for these things? So that's the first big issue. Let's talk about the second one. Second big issue that people have is God's anger and wrath. In the Old Testament, God's anger repeatedly burns against God's people for their disobedience and for all kinds of other people for their disobedience. And at times, the punishment God dispenses seems particularly harsh and unjust and, and dis, disproportionate to the crime. And so there are a couple of examples. One, um, Exodus 32 tells this well-known story of Moses' brother Aaron crafting a golden calf. The story of the golden calf sounded familiar to you. That was to represent Yahweh and at the time Aaron made this idol, Moses was on Mount Sinai, and he comes down from Mount Sinai and sees these people worshiping this, this golden calf, and he says to them, who is on the Lord's side? And, and, and all these like, sons of Levi come to Moses' side, and then Moses says to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp, each of you killing your own brother and your friend and your neighbor if they bow down to this calf. And they did, and 3,000 people fell that day. God's anger and God's wrath. Or consider um, 2 Samuel, we find King David, who decides to take a census of, of all the men of fighting age. And the prophet Gad is sent to David to announce God's displeasure with his taking a census. You wanna know the punishment for David's sin? It says the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time and 70,000 people died. David makes a decision that doesn't please God and God kills 70,000 people for it. How could this action ever be reconciled with a God of mercy and compassion and justice and love. It's easy to understand now why Marcion was so troubled by this portrayal of God in the Old Testament. I'm just going to put it out there for you all. Okay. Then finally, the third major issue, the, which I think is probably the hardest, the biggest, is when genocide is commanded and committed in the name of God, and that's the conquest of Canaan. At the time that the Israelites entered the land, we all know this story of them pining for the land and God saying that the land is theirs to take. In the land, though, Canaan was populated with these like small city-states or kingdoms made up of various ethnic groups speaking similar languages, and God promised Israel 
that he would give them this land, but to do so, these people had to be displaced. This alone is problematic, the whole idea of displacing people so that you can take their land, but God didn't ask the Israelites to forcibly relocate them to other lands. God instructs them to kill every man, woman, and child. These are the instructions given in Deuteronomy 20. As, as for the towns of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive in them. You shall annihilate the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Prezites and the, uh, and the Hivites and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded. So the, in, in this Hebrew word, annihilate, it has at its root this word harem, which means to exterminate. But it also has this sense of devotion added to it. Devoting something to God by completely destroying it. And it's in Joshua 6 that you can read about what this looked like as the Israelite army entered the town of Jericho. In the end, the entire population of 31 city-states was utterly destroyed. But in today's text, we learn that God was grieved by the violence of humanity, by the violence of human beings committed between one another. And for this reason, God decided to bring an end to the earth. But now God is commanding the Israelites to slaughter entire towns and tribes and nations, showing no mercy and providing no escape, no other option. How can this be? And I suspect that most people who read the Bible either don't think about this or gloss over these sections. In fact, the lectionary, which is what most mainline churches use on Sunday mornings, specifically leaves all of this out. So you would never read it if you entered into any congregation, mainline congregation throughout the year. You would never fall upon those texts. Or people just skip them altogether. I was 14 years old when I first read the book of Joshua in some way and this story of Canaan. The stories didn't trouble me at the time. I'm not sure why, but they didn't trouble me at the time. In my mind, they were epic battles with great storylines and heroic figures, right? Who doesn't enjoy reading about how the walls of Jericho came tumbling down and singing about it too? VeggieTales and Awana programs managed to take one of the biggest moral issues of all of scripture and make them stories for me and many others of a God who was fighting on behalf of God's people. If God can fight for them, God can fight for me. I suspect that's how most people read these stories today, right? But when I grew up in adulthood, I reread these stories and began to think about the humanity of the Canaanites. These were like human beings who lived and loved and, and had families. Yet they were all put to the sword by the Lord's army. 31 cities slaughtered with no terms of surrender offered, no chance to relocate to another land. I'm sure you can see the moral and theological dilemmas posing these stories, and I'm quite convinced that if Israel's invasion of Canaan were to happen today, we would be draping our doors and updating our profile pictures 
with Canaanite flags, a sign like with Ukraine of our solidarity with the people of Canaan and our condemnation of the Israelite invasion. So how do we resolve the theological and moral dilemmas that confront us in these passages? As I see it, as I see it, there are two ways we can go about this. The first way may be the way that you have heard it resolved before. The first and the only option that I see if you are someone who believes in the inerrancy of scripture and its inspiration is to accept that these commands and stories accurately capture what God said and did and and what God commanded God's people to do, to accept them. And then the question for these folks who accept them is how the character of God revealed in these seemingly harsh and violent texts is consistent with the character of God revealed by Jesus Christ. To make this case, advocates for biblical inerrancy, those who believe that the Bible is the Bible and these stories are the stories, they usually speak of God's authority. God's authority to give and to take life and of the need for God to demonstrate a firm hand to the Israelites in order to lead them to walk in God's path and God's way. But in the process, they, they downplay God's attributes of love and kindness and mercy and compassion and justice. To explain the total and merciless destruction of the Canaanites, they point out the Canaanites' wickedness surmising that that they are more wicked than other peoples in the, the the Near East ancient world. They argue that the Canaanites deserved their extermination. One author describes it as a form of of collective capital punishment, maybe, for the evil that the Canaanites ever committed, for all of it. And in a response, it's been pointed out that this is the same argument that has been often made throughout history to justify genocide. It's no different. Think back to the arguments of Hitler concerning the Jews. Many of us read these these justifications for why God prescribed horrible and seemingly immoral acts of violence, but find it impossible to reconcile these acts with the character of God Christianity proclaims. Jesus, Jesus, breaks bread with sinners and, and, and ministers to prostitutes and adulterers and hangs on the cross and prays for his accusers and executors. This is far from, from the God who destroys tens of thousands of people. And so what's the other alternative? The Bible says these things. They're in there. That's why I felt like I had to tell you they're in there because we do... So much of the time, we act like they're not in there. (laughs) The Bible says these things. The Bible says it. Are we required to accept it? The point of of the first half of our, our Wordle series was to recognize the complexity of the Bible and to help you see its humanity. If we understand the Bible as having been essentially dictated by God, then yes, we have no choice but to accept it. 
That's the only path we can take. We have to accept what is written as accurately describing God's actions and God's will. But if we recognize the Bible's humanity, if we start there, that it was written by human beings whose understanding and experience of God was shaped by their culture and their theological assumptions themselves and the time in which they lived. And they might be, we might be able to say, in this case, the biblical authors were representing what they believed about God rather than what God actually inspired and required of them. If we use Jesus' words and his great commandments as this, this colander, we'll see that these violent passages in the Hebrew Bible contradict not only these great commands, but the very life and, and ministry of Jesus, who, was, who we are told very clearly in the Bible is God's unmitigated word. The impulse to kill and to destroy the enemy and to put to death those who violate social norms is a continuing part of our world today, isn't it? For those who believe in God, this violence is often perpetrated while asking for God's blessing and God's help, and at times it is even committed in the name of God. But violence is, is this equal opportunity illness. It's this equal opportunity illness in the human condition. Atheist regimes have sought to impose their view of utopia too by slaughtering millions of people. It is the human story that throughout history we have tragically, tragically supported the use of violence to enforce the will of dictators and kings and even the majority in democratic societies. What is true today was true in the ancient Near East, only without the terrifying weaponry that can destroy entire cities that we have now in a single bomb. In August of 1868, this, this stone was found, and it became um, actually this piece of archaeological evidence that, that changed the way people began to see this question and how to answer it. The stone was found in a field in Jordan, um, commonly called the Moabite stone. Possibly you read some kind of article about it. It kind of revolutionized um, archeology span and theology. Um, sometimes it's called the Mesha uh, stone as well. It dates back to about 840 BC and it described the victory of King Mesha of Moab over Israel. Mesha and the people of Moab worshipped the Canaanite god, uh, Shemash. And listen to King Mesha's account in this, in this selection from the Moabite stone. Listen to this. It might sound familiar. And Shemash said to me, go take Nebo from Israel. And so I went by night and fought against it from break of dawn until noon, taking it, slaying all 70,000 men, boys, women, girls, maidservants, for I had devoted them to the destruction for the God of Ashar Shemash. So what we see in this like, text is that Mesha believed his God had urged him to go to war too. And as an expression 
of devotion or possibly as a means of justifying genocide, the people of the town were devoted to destruction, it says, the same Hebrew word. The mention of that God had directed the king to go to war and that king was leading his people in battle on their behalf and at the will of and with the help of a God seems to have been a common way of justifying war and and rallying people to fight. So one possible resolution to the moral and theological dilemma raised by the text we've been studying is that Moses and Joshua and David were warriors living in times when violence was seen as part of God's way of accomplishing God's purposes in a larger time when it was seen that way. They attributed to to God's words and commands and deeds what they believed that God would have authorized and done based on an overall societal warrior mindset of defeat and conquering and destruction. And what I am suggesting is that the Old Testament passages about violence and war thus tell us more about the people who wrote them and times they were living in than about the God in whose name they claimed authority to do the things that they did. And a second possible way of making sense of the violence of the, of the Old Testament, particularly related to war, is to recognize that Moses and Joshua and David, they were... They were Israel's heroes. They were warrior saints. These stories were written down long after their time to inspire others to courage and an absolute commitment to God. Perhaps the stories of the conquest of Canaan were to ancient Israelites with the stories of William Wallace, Braveheart, are to the Scots now. Written long after the time of these stories, they were meant to demonstrate courage and resolve and faith and to inspire later generations still struggling against their own enemies. Stories written from the theological perspective of of the ancient Near East where gods sent heroes into battle and fought alongside them. No one reads Sir Walter Scott's book on William Wallace, no one watches Braveheart to find a model of ethics of war. Nobody reads it for that purpose. They read it to be inspired by a hero. The same could be true of the book of Joshua and much of the Old Testament as we read it. Don't read it as a model for the ethics of life and war, but read it to be inspired by this hero in this time for these people. And it would be easy, right, to never read difficult sections of scripture then, right? It'd be easy to just never read Joshua. The question still remains, why do we read it then? Here's why I think it would be a tragic mistake if we didn't. Why I still think Marcion was wrong to cut out all of, of this part of the Bible because there are are a great many ways that God speaks through these texts. There are a handful of passages in Joshua that are moving and powerful ones we have crocheted on our pillows in our homes when Joshua calls the Israelites to choose this day whom you will serve. That's from Joshua. Choose this day who you you will serve. But for me and my household, I will serve the Lord. Finally, perhaps the most important reason for reading Joshua is to remind us of how easy it is 
for people of faith to invoke God's name in pursuit of violence and bloodshed and war. It should be like that song we sang earlier, a reminder to our souls of what humans are, can do, what can happen, how we can use religion, how we can corrupt it. The, crusader, the crusaders marched into battle in Jerusalem in the name of Christ, right? Colonists from the old world arrived in the new world, Bibles and weapons in hand to claim America first for Christ. Nazi belt buckles proclaimed God is with us as they, as they sought to exterminate the Jews. And when America still marches to war, patriotism and faith are quickly melded so that to be a good Christian is to support the soldiers at war. If every word of the Bible was chosen by God, then our conclusion must be that God was a violent God. But if we take the Bible's humanity seriously, we find the possibility that the violence of scripture is, is really just this reflection of the values and the theological and moral vision of human authors, and therefore, therefore we ought not to do away with these passages, but judge all of scripture in light of God's definitive word, that is Jesus Christ. Ultimately, like, violence-affirming passages of the Old Testament serve as a reminder to us of how easily it is to invoke God's name as a justification for all kinds of things in our world. To the degree that we, we see Jesus as the definitive word, the Jesus who turned the other cheek, the Jesus who forgave those who were wrong, who prayed for those who persecuted him, to the degree that we see that Jesus as the word, we are able to free ourselves of that tragic dimension of our human condition. So will you pray with me? God, rather than asking how, we have an answer for that now. How could we reconcile this? We have an answer saying we don't because it's not you. Rather than asking why, why is it in the Bible then? We don't have to ask that because we now have an answer that says, because what would the Bible be if it didn't speak to the possibility of human evil and sin at its worst, most corrupt levels. It would be just a, a book of fluffy good news without substance. It would be good without the opposite of evil to show really truly what good looks like. God, we know you are good we take the honesty of these texts and we, we rebuke how they've been used to say something about your authority and your strong hand and we own them, God, as just a part of that, that cycle of the human condition and we know we need you. Each one of us here today needs you, God. We need you to remind our souls that you are Lord of all, not 
not war, not violence, not the shield and not the, the sword, but that you, God, the one who, who prayed, prayed for us from the cross, the one who laid your life down, did not become a warrior, but became, became weak utterly to death, that that's the God that you are. We don't need you to be our hero, God. We need you to be our savior. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.